Paris. Patience is here with the boom. Where is Uncle Joseph? I see she's a bit of all right. Oh, that's Uncle Joseph indeed, you cretin. I sent him to you in a barrel. Well, what's this? You realize we're ruined. I think I know what's happened. There's been a mix-up. Masterman, Masterman, die? This must be the effect of the nutmeg tarts. You know what that is. That is stuck. That is what that is. Oh, I'm sorry to seem so inhospitable, but in the past 12 months alone, over 320 girls in the Greater London area have been attacked by persons unknown, and many of them unnecessarily mutilated. Do come in. Oh, yes. Okay. I think we'll pay a call on... Michael Finsbury, sir. I know, I know. Michael Finsbury, naturally. Sit in that chair. <laughs> Don't sit on that muggy, sir. She's the finest ratter in the East End. I'm terribly sorry. That's all right. Ah, tiger. to GoonPod. Uh, now, if my voice sounds croakier uh, than normal, um, I can only put it down to uh, the dreaded COVID, my friends, uh, or as I prefer to call it, the lurgy. Yeah, um, unfortunately, um, it has struck and um, I'm not feeling too bad, to be honest, but uh, I was pretty rough for a while there. Uh, anyway, this week, it is returning guest, Tim Worthington, and Tim is always fantastic value. Uh, Tim popped along to talk to me about uh, a, a wonderful film from the 60s. Uh, and um, by the way, Tim and I had a conversation uh, several weeks ago, so I was, uh, I was fighting fit and um, sounded a lot more normal than I do at the moment. So uh, anyway, hope you enjoy the conversation. Yeah, so Tim, obviously last time you were here, it was early in the show's run. You, you came to talk about the LP, Peter and Sophia, which was fantastic. And obviously rocked up again tonight to talk about, uh, actually to talk about another Peter Sellers project, in air quotes. We'll come to that in a moment. Um, before we get on to that, reading on Twitter, I think you were watching some some hijinks on the big screen last night. Is that right? Yes, I was. I went to see A Hard Day's Night on the big screen, which was, well, I'd never actually seen any of the Beatles films in the cinema. Uh, well, I say that I did see the rooftop concert the other week when it was given mm. an a IMAX release. And I really loved seeing that, you know, just it magnified that big, but also all the extra sound detail you got and so on. The stuff you noticed, like I hadn't noticed with the third policeman on the roof before that fellow with the moustache that goes, I'm just jolly well going up, who apparently was about <laughs> 23 or 24 at the time. But I saw A Hard Day's Night was, you know, back on in cinemas. I don't know why it is. I, there are rumours apparently of a 4K Blu-ray, but I don't think that's been confirmed yet. But I just thought I'd really like to see it. You know, in the form in which it was originally intended and I did get some sense of what it must have been like going to see it in 1964 when you know you didn't get the Beatles for that long at all at that point even on the radio I suppose if you went to see them live maybe but you know then that was that that was gone that was a moment that was gone whereas a hard day's night you could have gone to see again the next day and I bet people did actually well back in 64 you could have just sat there in, the, in your seat and wait for it to come on again couldn't you <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what they were. That's a deleted subplot from the film, basically. Yeah. I think. <laughs> what was that like? Um, the thing about that film that always fascinates me, um, She Loves You, is slightly slowed down, isn't it? Yes, and there are, of course, there's a million theories out there about as to why that is, but I think it was probably just, you know, a byproduct of the mechanics of getting the film out so quickly. It, you know, people like to read so much into, you know, what they think are creative decisions from, you know, the 50s and the 60s, which, again, might come back in this chat. But, yeah, it's 
really probably just you know kind of well we need to get it out that'll do it's mm. my you know <laughs> rather than mm. any sort of sinister plot by i don't know george martin in cahoots with the zombie people or something i don't know <laughs> <laughs> oh, i tell you what I'm, I'm, i am envious i'd love to have seen uh wilfred bramble on the big screen <laughs> it was quite a spectacle <laughs> he was very clean though it's very clean <laughs> but he would not have been out of place in uh, the film that we're going to be talking about today, which is The Wrong Box from 1966. Tim, why did you bring along The Wrong Box to talk about? Uh, my actual decision of what my favourite film is kind of varies from day to day. You know, sometimes it's Quadrophenia, sometimes it's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, sometimes it's Peeping Tom, Harold and Moore. You know, I've got mm. uh, basically about two dozen favourite films that swap all the time, but this is definitely one of them. I actually have an original frame poster in the wrong box on the wall in my house, and I love it that much. I've loved it since I very first saw it when I was very young, and I think it's incredibly overlooked when you consider who's in it, you know, not just the comedy people, but the, you know, the quality of the actors as well, the fact it's what was a really big film in the 60s it's kind of its stock has fallen since then and I can't quite work out why I think it just deserves a lot more attention and I can't really kind of put it any more profoundly than that I was trying to remember when I very first saw it I think it might have been the BBC used to show kind of you know what were big films in the 60s things like Fathom and the Brain and so on on say either a Tuesday or Wednesday evening, it's the sort of thing you were allowed to stay up for, you know, at the age I was at that point. And that's where I remember it showing up. That's where I would have first seen it. But I more associate it with, I've got such fondness for this, was around the time, you know, in the early 90s when Michael Caine started, because obviously we haven't actually said he's the lead in the wrong box. Mm. And Mm -hmm. his films are starting to be re-evaluated just around the early 90s, you know, is his, his classic 60s stuff, which had kind of been lost down the back of the drawer for a while. You know, you might occasionally see them last thing at night on... I, I remember an incredibly butchered version of Get Carter showing up on ITV a few times. That Obviously, at that point, I didn't know it was very heavily cut, but the entire subplot was gone right. because it didn't feel they could show it. And he was starting to, I think, I think he might have written his autobiography around then, or one of them at least, and... You know, there was a bit more attention being paid to his films, and that was given a huge boost by... He was kind of picked up by... People forget that when Loaded magazine first started... Yeah. Mm. It didn't become kind of the babes and bacon sandwich thing until about a year, 18 months in. I mean, Mm. you know, the the initial cover stars were Gary Oldman, Eric Cantona, and Paul Weller, you know, rather than, you know, some children's TV presenter in their pants, as Lee and Harry (laughs) always put it. But... Michael Caine was really picked up by then. And also, it was the whole lounge core thing that went hand in hand with Britpop. And there was one of the spin-off CDs from that, the Sound Spectrum, had the what at that point with the few released bits of the Get Carter soundtrack on it. It was quite a moody, easy listening album. And it had a sleeve note from Michael Caine talking about the music from Get Carter, saying, Roy Budd was a friend of the great composer. I loved his score. I'm very pleased it's available again. That's probably the closest you get to fulsome praise from Michael Caine. That's about his most emotional and expressive, I think. Well, didn't um, I'm sure Gorillaz had a had a had a B side that sampled the Get Carter theme called Dracula. Yes, quite a few people. The Charlatans based a song around the Get Carter riff called Was it Inside Looking Out or was it? It was one of the ones on Up to Our Hips, the album anyway. But right, yeah, yeah the, it what all that stuff was resurfaced in quite a lot. Blur used the song from the end of the Italian job, the, the self-preservation societies and intro tape. So it was all coming back in. But the BBC had started taking to showing, you know, in the, the days just before and after Christmas, last thing at night on BBC One, a mini season of Michael Caine's 60s films. So, you know, the three Harry Palmer films, Alfie, uh, Zulu, Obviously, the wrong box as well, and mm-hmm. pulp. And what I always remember is spotting one of them in the Radio Times, just scanning to the bottom of the listing and seeing uh, in italics at the bottom of it, Michael Caine appears in pulp on Tuesday, and thinking, "Yes, they're showing them all." <laughs> and I have, you know, because you couldn't, you could only see these things. Some of them weren't even on video at that point. You could only see these things when you could see them. 
And that was always such a such an exciting thing. And the wrong box, because it didn't feel like it should have been on, you know, going on beyond midnight. It did not suit that time slot at all. No. And it really stood out there. But that's what I really associate it with is, you know, kind of being A-level student age and, you know, staying up to watch this film. Yeah, and I, I think I, remember, I would have seen it in the early 90s as well. It was one of those films that I didn't really take to at the time when I first saw it. So I only watched it the once and it was only subsequently because uh, it came out in on Blu-ray several years ago, didn't it? Mm. Um, and I and I bought the Blu-ray and I've just sort of worn it out through watching it and re-watching it. Um, I mean, I would have seen it in the 90s. I would have sorted out specifically because of the fact and, and the reason that it's being examined on the Goon Pod this week is because it features Peter Sellers, obviously. Do you by any chance happen to have any... Um death certificates do i happen to have any death certificates sir? what a monstrous thing sir what a monstrous thing to say to a member of the medical profession to realize the enormity of what you've just said yes do you have any death certificates how many do you want oh, just the one would be sufficient <laughs> and if you'd be so good as to simply sign your name and leave the remainder blank well, it'll cost you five shillings. Price is no object. Right, ten shillings then, payable in advance. It's got that kind of, uh, who was it? Um, Kenneth Tynan described it as uh, Portobello Road, Victoriana. Yes, I think it had some bearing possibly on kind of the fashions that emerged. Because if you look at what some of the people, particularly the Temperance Seven, are wearing in this, and then you fast forward 18 months, you look at what Jimi Hendrix is wearing yeah. around you know, yeah. the time of all your experience. There's a very big influence there. The whole Victoria the thing was, you know, really big. You've got Jonathan Miller's Alice in Wonderland around the same time mm. as well. Mm. And yeah, I think, but I think it's interesting you didn't take to it when you saw it because... I do wonder if, because I will probably have been about five or six when I first saw it, and that's the age where you don't really know who most of these people are that are in there. You don't have any kind of critical faculties. You are just seeing an increasingly mad and silly film where lots of people are running around making, you know, quick-fire jokes and getting into scrapes and so on. And I'd liken it to the fact that I also still love, and people look at me askance when I say this, it's a mad, 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 mad world, which I would also have seen when I was incredibly young. And mm, mm. when I watch it now, I can see what the problems with it are. But it to me, it's still that film where, you know, Phil Silvers and company were just herring across America <laughs> trying to get hold of this money. And I think The Wrong Box was like that. It is... People call it a mess. I don't think it's a mess. I think it is sprawling in a very good way. We don't. No, we won't necessarily go through the film in a linear fashion, but we have the beginning of the film where you've got the the schoolmaster explaining to the boys about this tontine, and we then get this very kind hearts and coronets sequence of <laughs> of increasingly dramatic deaths. Well, do you know what I thought it reminded me of? The Simpsons. All those vignettes are very like something that would happen, you know, when Homer says, hey, let's hope our guys are all safe. And then... (laughs) (laughs) Well, on The Simpsons, I mean, we we talk about a tontine. There's obviously that Simpsons episode. There is. Flying Hellfish, is it? Yes, yeah. Um, And and, I mean, in case there's anyone listening to this that don't know what what a tontine is, what is it? A tontine is a plan in which the last surviving member of of the pact gets all the the boodle or the money and the whole plot of the film is essentially two brothers of the last two surviving members of this tontine and and i suppose the whole the whole film revolves around um, misattributed deaths would you say yes basically yeah and attempts to you know hoodwink people into thinking, you know, each of the brothers is the last survivor, they then backfire and, you know, rebound in increasingly escalatingly over-the-top ways. And it all does all build up towards, you know, the glorious sight of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore alternately punching each other and waltzing yeah. <laughs> at a funeral. <laughs> Just on Cook and Moore, it was, came in, it was filmed in between series one and series two of Not Only But Also wasn't it and what was the film seen as a as a vehicle for for them essentially 
See, I don't think it was, because I was thinking about this. You think about it now, you think of it as a Peter Cook and Dudley Moore film, even though, you know, there's plenty more people in it. You know, we haven't even mentioned half of them yet. But kind of the position they were in, I mean, I know they'd been in Beyond the Fringe, but that was more, you know, it's easy to forget this from this distance. That was a stage thing. Mm. There was rarely any representation of that. There was the album, there was a TV presentation, which I think was shown once, and you know, I would argue that at that point, Jonathan Miller was still the most prominent of the four of them, really, because you know he was presenting all kinds of art shows and things, and he he had yeah. done a couple of films by that point. Peter Cook, Dudley Moore were, you know, they were becoming, you know, the pop comedians essentially, but they were on BBC Two. They just had the first series, not only but also, and it's kind of like. If Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie had been in the room with the view in the mid eighties, you know, it would it would now look like the first Fry and Laurie film, but it yeah. would have been we've got these roles. That who are those two guys that are on BBC Two? They'd be ideal for those roles. Yeah, oh. I think it was more like that really. But they end up almost stealing the film. Mm, mm. Not only, but also, um, first series featured Peter Sellers, of course, and yes, um, yeah, and Sellers had had worked with with them both on the bridge on the river why mm. um but you, yeah you're right you're right they weren't this was this was pre bedazzled and i think i suppose it is a vehicle for michael kane who had gone very big very fast because alfie had just been released when this for what a couple of months before this film was released yes um, and then rise was very rapid because if you look at only a couple of years before that, I mean, they'd be doing acclaimed drama, but it was on, you know, a bit on BBC television, mainly on the third programme, which is what became Radio 3. And then suddenly he's in Zulu. Everything just takes off because then you get the press file, then Alfie, then this in real rapid succession. Yeah, well, I saw him in um, a recording of ITV, was it Granada recording of Hobson's Choice? Oh, yes. And he played the role of, and I forget the character's name, but it was the role that uh, John Mills played in the Charles Lawton version some years before. So that's quite, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because obviously uh, John Mills is mm. playing grandfather Masterman Finsbury, um, Michael Caine's grandfather in uh, The Wrong Box. And I, I just want to say this up front. I think there are some outstanding performances in this film. I don't think John Mills particularly comes out of it with any great credit. He doesn't seem to know how to play comedy when he's surrounded by mostly actual comedians. Mm. He does, you know, enough with the role to, you know, carry the film along. But you are right, he doesn't... His timing isn't brilliant, I don't think. When he's trying to kill his brother by stabbing, mm. garroting, and poisoning, and it's just—he looks like he's actually trying to do it. That's the—it's <laughs> actually quite horrific. <laughs> but Richardson, Ralph Richardson, who plays Joseph, his brother, you know, maintains that kind of that slightly befuddled air that Richardson does so well. And Richardson, by the way, of course, um, turns up in the bed sitting room film with Cook and Moore some years later. Yes, later. yeah. I just want to quickly run through. We've obviously said it's a film full of faces, full of famous people and not so famous people, and some some people that would go on to become very famous. And I just want to I just want to run through some of the people that we see get killed very quickly in the first what ten minutes of the film. <laughs> um, we we see Jeremy Lloyd killed by cannon fire. Jeremy Lloyd obviously went on to uh, be, be more famous as uh, uh, one half of Croft and Lloyd. Um, are you being served in Hello alone and whatnot? James Villiers is killed savage by a falcon, I think. Um, Graham Stark, always Graham Stark, of course, is, uh, what's he, a top of snowy mountain, planting a flag and then sort of falls through the snow. Uh, Nicholas Parsons, for God's sake, um, killed by an arrow. An arrow through a bugle. That's <laughs> through a bugle, yeah. Uh, Willoughby Goddard, who's killed in a collapsed coal mine. <laughs> <laughs> of interest to, to listeners to this podcast, Valentine Dial, mm. kind of going cross-eyed as he's, well, we, we assume he's going to be um, flattened by a rhino. And then we have <laughs> we have Leonard Rossiter just gets shot by two duelists, doesn't he? <laughs> yes, and the thing about that is nearly every 
well, there's not that much out there about the wrong box, you know, that goes beyond listing, you know, credits and the date it was made and so on. But the few critical pieces that are out there I tend to refer to the, him as being pre-fame. He'd already been in Billy Liar. Of course he had. Of course he had. Yes. I was forgetting that because obviously he, he, he rocks up in um, 2001. Yes. Yeah. Which oh. again, like that's good. That gets described as a pre-fame thing, but he'd done loads by then. Mm. I think people just think Rigsby was the only thing he did. <laughs> yeah, I'm very fond of his of his role in Barry Lyndon, where he does. Yes. We, we see him. Yeah. <laughs> we see him in breeches, don't we? We see him doing some some <laughs> dancing, <laughs> very inelegantly. Uh, yeah. So, what do you want to talk about first with regards to, to, to the film, Tim? Well. It's difficult to know where to start because so much does go on and there's so many things I've picked out that I want to mention that, mm. you know, it's just randomly all over the place. Mm. The first thing to say is I don't know if it's quite come across how much I adore this film. It, you know, I'm very big on 60s British cinema anyway, but a lot of it is, you know, are things I like despite themselves, like Twisted Nerve with Howell Bennett, which, you know, we better not go into the storyline of that. You know, things that don't Hang quite on. work. Like, Hang on, Harold Bennett? Did you say? Howell Bennett, yes. Yeah. Oh, oh, I thought you said Harold Harold Bennett, and I'm thinking no, old no. Mr. Grace, young Mr. Grace from Aiden's. No, uh, <laughs> Howell Bennett off Shelley was yes, in a okay. very strange British horror film in the 60s. <laughs> Things like I Start Counting is a great film, but doesn't quite work. You know, um, Blow Up, you know, I love the yeah. overambition of that. But this, I think, is just an absolutely... I would place it alongside Oh, What a Lovely War, which is a very similar film in some ways because, you know, it is kind of mining that era for, you know, quite dark humour. I mean, we haven't actually said that The Wrong Box is actually based on a Robert Louis Stevenson novel from... Oh, God, I better just check what it's from. From 1889, which is weirdly forgotten about. The Wikipedia page for that is just one paragraph. It is a really funny novel, but I think that the best way you could describe the film script is it's extrapolated from the novel. Nearly everything that happens in the film happens in it, but maybe not to this magnitude. Yeah. <laughs> because it was adapted by Larry Gelbart and Bert, I think it's Chevlove, it's pronounced, yeah. but they'd recently written The Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. So you know, they were familiar with taking a simple idea and making it a really big comedy thing, and that's exactly what they did here, but... They did it on the screen rather than on the stage. And maybe that's why people find it a bit difficult in some ways, because there is so much going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, Cade would go on to be in um, Kidnapped some years later, wouldn't he? Which was another. Yes, of course. Yeah. Robbie Lou Stevenson. Uh, less comic, that one, I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing about Kane and this, and he's playing playing Michael Finsbury. Obviously, he's playing uh, the male lead and, and he's very much keeping it quite buttoned up isn't he he is but he really does get to deliver some great lines in a really brilliantly deadpan style like the one that always makes me laugh is when he with mild shock he announces cousin morris had no trousers on peacock if you say so sir and there's the whole interlude of when the net newman's trying to get him to talk through the door saying could you speak a little lower and he thinks mm. she means more quietly it's actually through the letterbox at the foot of the door <laughs> but but he, he, unlike John Mills, he gets that he's not a comedian and he doesn't have to match them. He has to just be funny with what he's given in their company. And I think he really, really absolutely understands that and it really works. Um, you mentioned the butler, though. We haven't touched on him yet. Wilfred Lawson. <laughs> now, he, he could be the standout star of this film. Some people may think that. I think he's he's certainly up there. He's you just he's up, you can't take your eyes off him, can you? Even though it's it's like he's going to break down any moment. It's gonna it's like everything's going to fall apart any moment, and he just just somehow manages to keep it all together. Yes, he absolutely does, and it's in contrast to now. I'm going to kind of play for both sides on this one. The other one who has much less screen time, but is kind of, in a sense, holding everything together is Tony Hancock as a detective who, I don't think it's the role of his career, but I don't think it's as bad as people say either. I mean, I do remember Roger Wilmer in 
who obviously wrote The Goon Show Companion, later the book called Tony Hancock Artiste, which is a fantastic book where he opens it by saying, I can't remember the quote off the top of my head, but it's about, you know, I don't want to talk about his personal issues. They've been talked about enough. Obviously, sometimes it informs the work, but the work is what I'm here to talk about. And, you know, he does that tremendously and with great enthusiasm and, mm. you know, is, is properly critically evaluative of, you know, mm-hmm. the, the less good ITV stuff and so on. But he gives the wrong box very short shrift. He lays into it as a film and then says, you know, Hancock turns up for a couple of scenes and, yeah, he basically does nothing. I don't think he does. I think he gives a creditable performance, but I don't think this would be live at this stage. I think he clearly had a drink before the film, and I think that impairs his performance slightly. Yeah, he looked. How do you? How would you describe it? Wet lipped. <laughs> yeah, his gaze wanders and so on. But he, you know, he was in quite a decline by that point. He just done what was that variety show he did for? I think ATV were. You can never find any reference to it beyond the title because it was reputedly absolutely dreadful. Oh, yeah. Something, uh, something like um, The Birmingham Show or something, wasn't it? Or... Now, I remember you you on Twitter sometime last year, I think, were talking about Hancock with, with reference to um, Year of the Cat. Oh, yes, Al Stewart, yes. Uh, the Year of the Cat was originally called At the Foot of the Stage. And it was about, he went to see, I don't know how old Al Stewart would have been at that point. I think it was around the time, would have been around the time he did The Elf, his first single. So I'm guessing he's about like 18 or 19. But he went to see Hancock, who got about 10 minutes into his set and just sat down at the edge of the stage and started telling the audience his woes and crying. <laughs> right. And so he, he wrote a song about that called At the Foot of the Stage. And obviously it later became The Year of the Cat, which... Credit here, stolen this from my old friend Ben Baker, but it has that amazing opening line, which you know you go walking through the crowds like, and it's obviously Peter Laurie contemplating yeah. a crime, but you know it's always think, you know we have to think about replacing it with like, like Peter Purvis contemplating a make, as <laughs> in the Blue Peter presenter and his makes, or you know Peter Bonetti contemplating some goals, <laughs> but yeah, it's. It, I thought it's never turned up, you know, even any demos of that. I would love to hear that song in full. But that would have been... The Hancock version in brackets. Yeah, but he would have seen Hancock around this period, wouldn't he? Yes, yeah. Yeah. Yes, it would have been exactly then, yes, yeah. But um, Michael Caine, I think he was fairly fond of this film. He, He said he liked the fact that the film featured a fusion of the the old and the new in the sense that you had these these sort of old war horses like Wilfred Lawson like Ralph Richardson and then you had you know the newer people like Cook and Moore um brought together and then i suppose you had the people who were sort of in between like Sellers and Hancock yes in some ways then it's like a successful version of what carry on columbus tried to do oh, yeah. so many years later <laughs> which you know that was trying to fuse the old carry on crowd with you know, well, they weren't even the new young alternative comedians by that point. But, you know, that it was that kind of gambit. But I think it goes even further than just that because it's like, you can't really say it's styles of filmmaking clashing because they obviously they didn't have films when it was set. But you know what I mean? The setting and the modern stylings are meshed together. There's yep. things like... I am convinced that... I mean, because John Barry's score for this is amazing. And for years and years... I just had the album, which I found in the charity shop, the soundtrack album. And also, there were two tie-in versions of the, you know, the Robert Louis Stevenson book in paperbacks. There was a Pam one over here, a Scholastic in America. There's also a really weird American novel inspired by it by Jeffrey Napier, which is kind of based on the film, but it's not quite. But yeah, I love that album. I still love it. You know, the music, particularly in the chase scenes at the end, it's incredible, but it's not just kind of period music. It's giving it a modern twist. It's like, you know, it's stylings from the Victorian era, but with an arrangement you might have heard on, say, something like, well, Matthew and Son by Cat Stevens comes into my head quite a lot because it's got a lot of those sort of tinkly mm-hmm. bits or mm-hmm. the the break and see Emily play by Pink Floyd between yeah. Yeah. the chorus and the second verse. But also, I'm convinced... You know, we mentioned Graham Stark on the, the mountaintop, crashing yes. through it. Mm. I'm convinced that there's a quote in there from You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. Mm. 
in the name of the Queen. Why it would have been a joke in there, I I don't know. But it does end with, you know, that... They're exactly the same as the closing notes of You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, which... Well, I was just going to check when that would have been in the charts. I've actually done that. Um, sorry, yeah, well, that was that was off... Um, uh, oh, it was help. in Help, of course. So it would have been out by that point. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm. So yeah, that, there, there was a nod towards everything that was going on. I mean, I think A Hard Day's Night was a big influence on this anyway, particularly the scenes on the train early on. Uh, not that far from the train scenes in A Hard Day's Night. You know, the, the way the dialogue's structured, the way they bounce off each other, even the camera angles are quite similar in some ways. Yeah. Um, although the, there is the um, the accident, the two trains colliding. Yes. Um, Cook's trousers are blown off. Um, and you do get those Batman-style captions in it throughout. I mean, they're, they're supposed to be silent movie things. It does actually slightly predate the Batman TV series. But that was a stylistic choice, and I think it really works. Mm. Um, in Cook and Moore's parts in this, in this Cook, Cook is pretty much one of the one of the leads, whereas... Moore doesn't have a hell of a lot to do. He's playing this Lothario character, who's obviously um, the, the sort of the, the lesser of the two when it comes to you know Cook mm. is the more dominant or dominant, or Morris Finsbury is more dominant of the two. But Dudley Moore was the biggest star around this point, wasn't he? Well, I think this is a problem that's inherent in you know most things where they appear as a double act and they didn't get to write it themselves where they're working for someone else's material, their double act doesn't quite work because there's this idea that, you know, not quite that Dud was the straight man, but you know what I mean, that Pete was the dominant one and, you know, Dud was the, the feed line bloke. And it was never like that. You know, when you actually watch, not only, but also, mm. they're both coming up with new things and making each other laugh on the spur of the moment. Derek and Clive, it flips on who's the most outrageous of them, you know, mid-sketch oh, yeah. sometimes. Yeah. And... I don't think other people quite got that. I mean, the worst example of that, obviously, is that film with the Hound of the Baskervilles, which, mm. you know, really, really did not understand their dynamic at all. And I think that comes across slightly in here as well. I think that Dudley doesn't really get enough to, you know, any proper leverage to work. You know, when they're just bouncing dialogue off each other, they can do that. That's fine. I think probably nobody was able to stop them doing what they wanted. But in terms of the rest of the plot, yes, it does make him a bit of a, a junior partner, really. Yeah. Uh, Cook has scenes with, with Kane and he's very good. And he has that scene where he mistakes Peacock, the butler, for uh, uh, you know, old Uncle Masterman. Yes. Um, <laughs> very obsequious towards him. <laughs> and, it turns, and he turns on a dime when he realises who he is. Uh, the only time that Cook, and this is a good opportunity to start talking about Sellers and the, the, the Sellers mm. scene. So Sellers is playing what do you call him, a suggestible doctor, a doctor for hire. He's yeah, he's obviously a backstreet abortionist as well. He does he sort of <laughs> does a bit of everything. Um, you get the the feeling from some of the things he says that he was at one point someone of note. He mm. he, he, had, he had a higher position in society. He's obviously fallen from grace uh cook has a scene in um dr pratt's surgery and sellers some of it is sellers improvising lines i think and there is a scene where you definitely see cook trying to suppress or manages to suppress yes a laugh <laughs> um uh, what was this what was the line that he used i can't remember there was a specific line that he comes out with and you can see cook just kind of the shoulders are slightly <laughs> stiffening <laughs> Uh, would you like to buy a moggy? No, thank you, Doctor. Mm, they make lovely pets. You'd like to have a moggy in the home. I collect eggs, Doctor. Eggs, yes. Oh, I enjoy an egg myself. Yes, they don't make good pets, though. You can never get them in at night. They're too quiet. Yes. But it was nice to see, because reading up about this, Sellers, Sellers asked for £25,000 for five days' work, right? which he didn't get. Uh, do you know how much that would be worth today? £25,000. No, but I've got a nasty feeling you're going to tell me. A, 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 a cool half a million. Okay. <laughs> for two scenes. Right? For, two, for two scenes. And he's he turns up, what, 53 minutes into the film. You've got two scenes that aren't very long. But you could argue 
And I would argue that he's the best thing in this film. Oh, he absolutely steals it. But in a way that it's not upstaging people. It's just that his... Uh, actually, much like Peter Cook later did in The Princess Bride himself, was that mm. they've been given a character that's got a very short amount of runtime and been asked, do your thing. And they've you know, they've fulfilled that brief to the letter. They've turned up and said, well, I'm giving it 200% me because that's what they want. And because of that, they outshine, you know, what in the case of this and in the case of the Princess Bride is already, you know, a tremendous cast full of, you know, fantastic people working with a great script that they've somehow transcended all of that just by being themselves for a couple of minutes on screen. Well, he, he, he slows down the pace, I think, slightly yes, as well. yeah. Uh, and in a good way. Uh, yes, and that's that's entirely him. I don't think that's in the direction at all. I think that is just his performance being unstoppable because I imagine it was quite hard to stop Peter... Se- well, it's a bit of a paradox to say it was, in this instance, it's hard to stop him when he was making things slower. But mm-hmm. I think once he got going, you know, there was no telling him, not a pig-headedness, but because he knew what he was doing and everyone was going, yeah, that's the right call. You can see that in a lot of his better work. I mean, in his lesser work, maybe somebody should have stepped in a couple of times. Mm, but mm. here, he's absolutely on form. And what's interesting is, you know, because obviously, you know, I've mentioned that Peter Cook and Dudley Moore were still on the up. Michael Caine definitely was, and Annette Newman, quite a few people. You know, Leonard Rossiter, you know, as we've said, some people would argue he was unknown <laughs> until Rising Dump. But you know what I mean? There's all... There are all these, you know, old guard types about, but the younger ones were all on the way up apart from. Obviously, Peter Sellers was already a huge star, but just trying to get a feel for what he was doing in the couple of years leading up to this. It's like trying to keep a swarm of bees in the net bag because, you know, you look around, he's he's just done After the Fox, What's New Pussycat, not long done Doctor Strange Love, the first Pink Panther film, The Millionaire S, Two Way Stretch, Wrong Arm of the Law, Heavens Above, The Telegoons, of course. Oh, yes. Yes, he did not only, but also he did that weird How to Win an Election album with, is it is it Milligan and Seacom on that? I can't, yeah. It's a very odd album, that, I think. it's uh, You know, it's interesting, it's, it's a, but it's a curio rather than the great album. But he was just doing so many, you can't really say disparate things, because they are all sort of themed, but... Yeah, he did Full, uh, Full Britannia with Anthony Newley. Uh, oh, yes, he did, yeah. Joan Collins. Joan Collins. Uh, yeah. But of course, what the one thing we haven't mentioned is that a year before this was filmed, he had all those heart attacks and technically died. Yes, um, I, I hadn't actually taken that into account, to be honest. But... <laughs> yeah, his heart has stopped for a couple of minutes. Mm. He was in Hollywood, wasn't he? So he was. He was on. He was on such. His career was in the ascendancy, and then he had this these heart attacks and then it took him a long time i mean he's still you know i think after the fox is a great film this is a great film um there's there's plenty of performances like hoffman is fantastic he's he's great in hoffman um but a lot of the films that he made you know in the declining years of the 60s and the the first sort of three or four years of the 70s a lot of them were quite uh, very forgotten aren't Mm. they um, and I think he'd sort of struggled. He'd, he'd, he'd had such a high with Strange Love and Pink Panther and and whatnot, and then and then he, he struggled to to reach those heights again. He he, he kind of did eventually. Mm. Was some of that then in that case, you know, well, literally in the case of Wrong Box, but a change of pace, maybe, maybe. That he, maybe he was he was reluctant to take on anything quite so physically and mentally demanding. You think about it, the film before this was what? What's New Pussycat? He was a secondary character in that, wasn't he? Yes. Um, he wasn't a lead in that. Um, so may- maybe you're right. Maybe he was just taking it easy for a bit. Um, but in this, I mean, Dr. Pratt is a fantastic creation. And it and it and I believe it took him quite a long time, as it often did with Sellers, it took him a long time to find find the character. And eventually he did. As I said before, they, the character... Um, he's had a great fall in the sense, you know, his standing in society has has declined to, 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 a, to a dramatic extent. He exudes a, a kind of a sense of wounded dignity and, and pride because there's that line, the last line that he says in the film, 
as Morris Finsbury leaves his surgery and closes the door, Dr. Pratt sort of looks wistfully out and says, um, Of course, you know, I was not always as you see me now. Was I, Mervyn? Eh? No, no, you're too young to remember. Stay away, lad. It's not good for you. It's almost heartbreaking. <laughs> yes, he, he pictures that line in exactly the right way because it's, it's tragic and funny at the same yeah. time. <laughs> you wonder as well, I'd love to know the, the famous sequence where he's he's signing or writing out this death certificate and he, he needs to blot the ink hmm. and he grabs up a kitten that just helpfully happens to be there and just uses it as a blotter. I'd love to know if that was just improvised or if that was actually directed like that yeah that would be fascinating though i mean as i say unfortunately it's one of those films where very little has been written about it critically and a lot of the people involved aren't really the sort of people who make with the anecdotes i mean i know you know michael kane has expressed some level of fondness for it but let's not forget you know generally when he talks about his films he you know his autobiography <laughs> will 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 assert that he was in Funeral in Berlin and it was a film and he was in it. You know, he's that kind of character. But also Brian Forbes, who directed it, you know, he's a great raconteur, but he doesn't talk much about the actual making of films. You know, he would talk about what it's like to work with the cast and so on, but rarely ever about the technicalities. And that is a bit of a shame as well, because I would love to know more about the making of this, because it, I know, you know, if you go too deeply into it, there are people on IMDb saying, no stars, you can see television aerials on it. What are they supposed to do in the 60s, mm. you know? But, mm. but apart from that, it looks, it actually looks like, you know, a, a black and white Victorian photograph burst into colour and come to life. Mm. It really does. And it avoids that feeling of, you know, that kind of weird London you get in films around them where... It's kind of like, you know, populous and overgrown, but deserted at the same time. Like in films, well, like I say, like Blow Up, like Twisted Nerve, like the outdoor bits in Monty Python's Flying Circus, where you can tell they've not even had to close the street off to film, you know, on high streets outside shops, because you can see people looking at them, like kind of, why is John Cleese being very strange? But yeah, it, it's got that weird look, sort of London around that time. But this somehow somehow escapes that you say about kane airily dismissing his films a lot of the time yeah often he'll just identify a film as being well that was a new house for my mum yeah. uh, uh, brian forbes though from from what i could find out so brian forbes had directed and been in king rat before yes. making this yeah. and i gather i've not seen king rat but i gather that a lot of the uh, actors from that turn up in this yes isn't that set in a prisoner of war camp? Yes, it is. Yeah, so, and he directed it. So how mm. did he? How did he manage to shoehorn in Nanette Newman into King Rat? He must have done because she's in <laughs> everything that he's yes, involved in. Yeah, you know, they were married for anyone who's listening who doesn't know. You know, they stayed married as well. Oh yes. So, yeah. Well, that's a weird one as well because there's obviously the stories of Sellers because we know what Sellers was like. He's a bit of a fantasist when it came to believing that some women were in love with him or there was something between mm. him and there was obviously famously Sophia Loren and I'm sure we've probably mentioned that last time but um Nanette Newman was also a, a target for his ardor. really yeah um but he was very good friends with Brian and and remained friends mm. with Brian and Nanette and but he said to Brian again uh, yeah I think he said to Brian Forbes one day in the I think it was was around the time, would have been around the time of Wrong Arm of the Law, something along the lines of um, Nanette and I are very much in love. Um, sort of, that was that. Mm. And Brian Forbes knew the reality and just kind of humoured him, I think. Um, but it's surprising. They they kind of, they they gave him a lot of rope. They, you know, they, they sort of tolerated it. You know, as he got older, before, his, you know, in the 70s, before he died, he was always looking back it's one thing I've picked up from doing this podcast and finding out more about Sellers is his, he was always looking back and, and nostalgic for the past. And, you know, that, that would be you know, things like the goon show, things like, you know, old houses that he grew up in or um, that he owned or schools that he went to and old, you know, films that he'd been in, in the, in the fifties. And he would always be looking back. And when he would write to 
Forbes and Newman, you know, later in later years, it would be on specially headed paper, uh, Dr. Pratt, MD, embossed <laughs> on the paper. I never knew that. Mm. So again, you know, that, so, you know, he was showing his affection for, for the film, I guess, through doing that. I, I think he, again, he, he has mentioned in interviews, Dr. Pratt, this is Sellers, um, subsequently. So I think he was very fond of that, that small role. Well, I'm not surprised, really, because, you know, it is a very good role in the time when I wouldn't say from this point on all of his roles were necessarily so memorable for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But as well as that, I mean, it is kind of the... You know, people talk about 1967 as the height of the 60s, but in 66, you know, when you've got the build-up to, you know, what came with things like Sergeant Pepper and so on, and you've got all these kind of disparate things that, you know, still look amazing now, like this, like Jonathan Miller's Alice in Wonderland, like the children's series Campbellwick Green, I'm still going to say, you know, that must have looked astonishing in 1966, and it still looks impressive now, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the colours look a bit dated and so on, but the the way pop music was going as well, you know, there was that slow build-up to, you know, the psychedelic summer of 1967, you know, we had the Beatles doing Revolver, but all these weird little bands appearing from nowhere, and The Wrong Box is kind of in the middle of, you know, that mounting excitement in... I say the arts, but it was everywhere. You know, it was in supermarket packaging. It was, you know, light entertainment shows on ITV were adopting, you know, kind of zebra graphics and so on. Yes, yeah. And it must have been so thrilling, even in a film based on the Victorian novel, set in Victorian London, with, you know, a lot of who weren't far off being Victorian actors in it. But that's still part of that mix, and I'm not surprised that he... Because Sellers like to... I don't think it's fair to say jump those bandwagons. He liked to keep up with the, what the young people were doing in a similar way to Leonard Nimoy around that same time in America. Always had a keen eye for, you know, what the latest trends were. Not in a kind of, you know, borderline new tree way or whatever, but like the way people like George Melly did. They were just interested in what was coming along. And, you know, Sellers... Evidently, was that because he spent a lot of time with his gurus and so on, and you know, mixing with the Beatles. And am I right in thinking he might have tried psychedelics, but he was part of the excitement? What's your What's your view on just on that? You mentioned touching it. The the Sellers sequence in Get Back. To be honest with you, it was one of the bits of Get Back that least excited me because. What I hadn't really managed to explain to people, although, you know, obviously I loved the whole thing. I loved seeing, you know, get back, the song appear from nowhere and so on. But it's the little details like Jimmy, the mod dormer, the Apple, mm. who I'm obsessed with. But also them talk about what they watched on the TV the night before. Yeah. And to me, it just felt a bit like, oh, there's Peter Sellers. Oh, yeah, right. Well, yeah, he was always with the Beatles. <laughs> you know, it didn't feel like an exciting revelation. So I didn't really notice it as much as I would have done in a in a shorter version of it if you see what i mean yeah yeah so with the wrong box it's so the plot is so convoluted yes that's exactly the word i'd use and it's really hard to it, it goes from it's fairly pacey up until the third act and the third act is just it essentially we have a we have a chase scene with purses I would call it mayhem. That's, mayhem. that's a pretty good description <laughs> of it. Tell me about the Temperance 7. The Temperance 7 are a really interesting sort of comedy musical act from the early 60s. I mean, they had a number one single in 1961, You're Driving Me Crazy. Yeah, and yeah. when they get mentioned now, it's as one-hit wonders. They weren't. They had Pasadena, which I think nearly got to number one. Hard-Hearted Hannah, which was, wasn't quite as big a hit, but the B-side of that, Chili Bomb Bomb, is has to be heard to be believed. Right. Uh, I think they did a version of the Charleston that got quite high. They had two top ten albums. Of course, they're also backing Peter Sellers on Ukulele Lady on Peter and Sophia. Yes, they are, yeah. And they were in a film, another film called It's Trad Dad in 1962, which had Craig Douglas and Helen Shapiro as two teenagers fighting a trad jazz band in their hometown. <laughs> Isn't that Dick Lester? It is, yes. Yeah. And Their role here is really interesting because they were, you know, the idea was that they were a kind of 
a comedy sort of Victorian brass band act. And, you know, they had a lot of influence, I think, not just on comedy, because, you know, I think they're from Monty Python and so on, but I think they also, with the way they dressed and, you know, their attitude and so on, there's, certainly there's a lot of that in Sergeant Pepper and, you know, mm. a lot of the other bands appeared around that point. I think they're more important than they're ever given credit for because I think it's easy to write them off because, you know, in this as well, they're not playing a comedy band, they're playing an actual Victorian band who do mm-hmm. some funny things. They look pretty much like, and ironically, it was being made around that point. I mean, I've always mentioned Campbell Green, Trumped and the follow-on series, mm. which always ended with the Fire Brigade brass band on the bandstand in Trumpton Town Park. They look exactly like that. You know, even the, the helmets are quite similar. But yes. I think... That they're what makes it more than just an ordinary chase scene. Is that you know you've got this? They're slowing up and speeding down. They're doing it uh, one of their compositions called "Light in the Head," which, as far as I can tell, they never actually issued commercially. But you know that is played in reaction to the events as various people pass them. You know it yeah. hurts essentially. Yes, and their timing. You know because they must have. It sounds to me like they're playing that live. You know, live on mic as the action goes yep. on. Yeah. And so they must have known to stop and start at the exact points they needed to. And, you know, on this evidence alone, it's very hard to find very much out about them at all, but they should be, you know, they should have their own BBC4 documentary, maybe. They should do. They should do. They're fronted by yourself, maybe. <laughs> well, if anyone wants to make I will be only too happy to research and present it. <laughs> yeah, so obviously, yeah, so, so we, we see them. At, now, was there eight of them? Not seven. Yes, uh, the Temperance Seven, who actually number eight, as it says in the credits. I yes. think there was a floating member because one of their albums has a similar joke along those lines. Right. right in the right. title of it. Something like the Temperance Seven plus one or something. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got this frenzied chase. Well, friend, yeah, we have a frenzied. It is a frenzied chase. We've got two hearses. We've got a brewery cart commandeered by Hancock. We've got Thorley Waters, the lawyer, in hot pursuit mm. as well. Um and then we have this sequence, which is this this grizzled old workman who's sat in the middle of a crossroads drinking a cup of tea or something. He's in the middle of these um, careering vehicles. Uh, and then there's a an accident, and somehow or other the boxes get mixed up, hmm. and we have this this graveyard scene with Norman Bird and and Irene Handel, who is was totally unexpected. Yes, as Mrs. Hackett. And it's interesting that, you know, you do associate her with Peter Sellers in your mind because, you know, she did those amazing tracks with him on his albums. But yeah. obviously they don't cross paths in this. No, that's right. That's right. Um, and she's she's playing, she's not playing the dotty old sort of working class or, or, or she's not playing that Beryl Reed. She's not doing that Beryl Reed kind of voice as, as how no, I would describe no, it, is she? Very well to do and, you know, well turned out. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you're right. I mean, she she was in Two Way Stretch uh, with Sellers. She was in mm. um, obviously famously uh, I'm All Right, Jack. Yeah, she did the LPs. Uh, she, she, oh, she was in all sorts of stuff with Sellers. Um, just, <laughs> just on that, I... Um, I saw a, a deleted sketch that didn't uh, turn up on the, you know, the complete Q DVD. Oh, yes. Yeah. Spike Milligan series. There was a sketch that wasn't included from Q5, a black and white sketch, uh, I think for rights reasons, because mm. um, it's, it's, it, it, the sketch it revolves around the song. Is it called When I'm Calling You? When I'm Calling You, you know, that song. Um, and it features Spike and various others, but it also has Irene Handel scrubbing some steps, right? <laughs> and I didn't, I don't, I can't remember. And I've seen all the Q. Was Irene Handel in Q normally? <laughs> I don't think she was, was she? I don't actually know. I don't, I don't think she was. No, I might be completely wrong. I mean, I know that all of Q5 doesn't exist. Uh, sorry, mm. parts of certain shows don't exist from Q5. Uh, I might be completely wrong, but I, I, I just don't associate uh, Irene Handel with, with the Q series. Remember those romantic days of the 30s? Today, thanks to socialism, that romantic image is no longer the prerogative of rich Hollywood stars. 
Today, the ordinary man in the street has access to the same song and the same God-given right to sing it. I'll be calling here. <laughs> Will you want to turn? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, sorry to digress there. But yeah, so we have this 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 uh, denouement where obviously there's a the the money because there's there's all this what hundred and eleven thousand pounds in cash, which we forgot to mention, which is in one of these boxes. And there's uh, also I should just say there's uh, bizarrely a troop of Salvation Army <laughs> headed by Cicely Courtney, just Major Martha. I always have difficulty saying her name because of that Monty Python sketch with Eric Idle as the Native American in the theatre, but. <laughs> yeah, they've somehow joined in, complete with Mercy, who, you know, given it's Victorian London, people are given to saying Mercy, and she replies, yes. Mm, mm. And, you know, it, everyone converges on this funeral for, you know, a funeral for some money, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I would say it's still mayhem. It's still chaos. <laughs> Nobody has really, apart from maybe, maybe Michael and Julia, possibly have got what they wanted nobody has least of all poor old tony hancock as a detective who's more confused than ever but yeah it's it doesn't really resolve proceedings at all just the camera sort of just pans away sort of vertically and yeah we we leave them to their their ructions over money that really none of them deserve i don't think I just thought Peacock was such a, I mean, it was his last, Wilfred Lawson's last film. Now he was in yeah. Hell Drivers. He was in um, Peter Sellers' film, Naked Truth, loads of stuff. It's the voice though, isn't it? It's the voice that's mm. the most uh, unforgettable thing about, about him. Brian Forbes described Lawson, Wilfred Lawson, as uh, underestimated, unreliable, uninsurable, and extremely gifted. Um. There were points, as I said, but I've already said it. You know, there's points where it looks like he's just going to completely collapse, but he mm. just manages to keep it together. And I, I understand from from little bit of research I've managed to find out about this that a lot of the times, a lot of the scenes with Kane, Kane, Kane and he became very close. Kane and Wilfred Lawson. A lot of the scenes between him and Kane um, would be shot um, from sort of. Uh, uh, sort of shoulders, shoulder, shoulders up, if you like, because um, Kane was actually holding on to him around the waist, stopping from collapsing. <laughs> well, it is great that you know. I think this was actually the last thing he did, and you know what a great note to go out on. And it's a lovely contrast to the way you know. I know I defended Tony Hancock's performance, but you know the last couple of years of his career were quite tragic for a number of reasons. I mean, apparently just before this, I had no idea about this until recently, he made a short film defending, ironically, Dr. Beeching's railway cuts, you know, given he lived in railway cuttings in Hancock. It's a a little ironic. But yeah, he did a comic film trying to say to the public, no, no, it's all good, actually. You know, he can't have been in the the best frame of mind when he agreed to do that, I don't think, you know, Mm. really. And, you know, I've never really seen anyone try to defend the, the shows he tried to make in sort of 66, 67 and that. Very, mm. very depressing thing he did in... Have you ever seen any of the Australian series that ever finished? Um, n- not, uh, only clips, I think. That, it reminds you know. me of Sid Barrett, who was the original Pink Floyd frontman. Yeah. The last thing he ever did, it's never mm. been released because it's just so dull. He started to do an album, I think in 1974, and he basically just did some kind of R&B-style rhythm tracks and then didn't turn up anymore after that, and... There was a guy who wrote a book about his recording sessions who commented that I found listening to them a depressing experience because, you know, it's just a a sad note to end on. And yeah, Hancock's Australian sojourn was a bit like that. But yeah, in contrast to that, you know, you've got the brilliance of Peacock yes. as a as a final note, and I think that's that's really something to be celebrated. Oh, absolutely. 
What shall we do, Master Michael? What shall we do? There's only one thing to do, Peacock. We must inform the police. But your grandfather's good name, sir. I shall say I did it. No. I'm an old man. Let me say I did it. What was your motive? Money. They'd never believe you. And why not, sir? After all, I haven't been paid for seven years. I'm begging your pardon, sir. No, Peacock. It's a noble gesture. But I shall plead guilty to the crime. But think of your career, sir. You have your whole life before you. Yes, there is that, of course. Well, we must think of something else then. So, Tim, is there anything else you wanted to, as we wrap up, is there anything else you wanted to mention about the wrong box? Well, just about. I don't really understand where... I mean, it has... If you could say it has a reputation at all, I would say it's got at best a mixed reputation. And I don't understand that. I don't understand where it's come from. There are much, much... I mean, you know, trying to see it from the point of view of somebody who doesn't think it's as fantastic as I do, there are much worse films from 1966 alone. Yeah. You know, it's like something like Absolute Beginners. It's like somebody at one point has decided, you know, we don't like this. And that has become the default setting. And like, there are plenty of other things you should disregard for no reason. Not this. I mean, I've loved it for a long time. And I've always thought it's telling that in Halliwell's film guide, now I love acting as if Leslie Hallowell himself wrote all the entries because people always correct me on that. And like, do you not understand the value of a joke pretending that he was a, you know, an awful film critic who hated everything that wasn't made, that was made after 1942 or whatever. But the write-up in that, whoever wrote it says, well-intentioned and stars of the black farce in which the excellent period trappings and stray jokes completely overwhelmed the plot. Now, that's somebody trying to do it down, and yet they spend 90% of that sentence talking about its positives. Yeah. I think it's something yeah. that really, really deserves reappraisal, <laughs> revisiting. Yeah. It just deserves to be seen more. I mean, I've always had to think about... I don't like things that... Yeah, well, in the sense I do like things being, you know, little known, I suppose, culty secrets or not even that famous, you know, not even that well known enough to be culty because I like the thrill of discovering things. But equally, I like to share them with people. I don't at all understand the thing of keeping it as a secret thing for your little clique and being angry with anyone who yeah. tries to take it to more popular audiences. You know, why not share the joy instead of, you know, sort of monopolising and micromanaging the misery, really? These things are great and they deserve... You know, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to get the wrong box trending on Twitter, but, <laughs> but I would love, you know, for more people to be aware of its existence. That's the best thing you can hope for with some of these things, to just to spread your enthusiasm, to make people aware of things. And that's what I want to do here. And it is available on Blu-ray. It's a it's a beautiful transfer, um, and it turns up on Talking Pictures TV quite often. I think these days they do excellent work. I just want to say that for the listening. Thanks, guys. I oh, really absolutely. appreciate what you do. Yes. Oh, yes. I second that. Yeah. So, Tim, thank you, thank you so much for for coming back to talk about the wrong box. So, what have you got coming up? I've got a number of things on the go at the moment. Uh, there is hopefully sooner rather than later. Some of you might be aware of my book, Top of the Box, about the BBC Records and Tape singles. Mm. The one about the albums, which will have a lot of Goon-related content in it, Good. is on its way. It's just there's a lot of fact-checking to do with it, as you can imagine, with something of you know that magnitude. Yeah. Uh, but generally... I'm presenting a nostalgia podcast called Looks and Familiar, which you know has quite a bit about forgotten comedy in it. It's about the things that you remember that nobody else ever seems to. So you know that might be I don't know Rimmel Coffee Shimmer lip balm, or it might be <laughs> you know Dead Earnest with Andrew Sachs, one of the worst things yes. ever made. You know it, <laughs> it can cover all kinds of ground like that. I also do one. I appreciate this will have very little sort of appeal for fans of Goonpod, but you might enjoy it, uh, called It's Good Except It Sucks About the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I would say, genuinely, even if you're one of the, 
you know, the grumpy people who only like it when Spike Milligan was blacking up and going, <laughs> or whatever. You know, if you like comedy, watch Ant-Man. That is one of the best comedy films ever made. Seriously. You, you know, you, you might think you don't like modern things. You will love that. But I've also got, I'm, as I say, the, there are a couple of book projects on the go, but I would like to just highlight one that I think might really appeal to fans of this podcast, which is The Lark's Ascending. Mm. which is a history comedy on BBC Radio 3. You might be thinking they didn't have much on it. Well, they did, and all kinds yeah. of people like Peter Cook was involved, Sue Townsend, Kenneth Williams did quite a few things, but there's not that much goon content. There's a little bit of Spike, a little bit of um, little bit of John Antrobus, people like that, but there's all kinds of interesting things in there, you know, all kinds of forgotten comedy things by people like N.F. Simpson. Um, yes, yes, of course, yeah. And I I do think a lot of, you know, because I, I love Goon Show, I love hearing what the other guests have got to say. I think from the general vibe, a lot of you would get a lot from that. Yeah. And for obvious reasons, it is of my self-published books, that is the lowest selling one, but <laughs> yes, no, I'm but... not just saying it because it's the lowest selling. I think a lot of you will really enjoy it. Radio comedy uh, with A-levels. Yeah. Basically, yes. <laughs> Thanks again to Tim. Uh, just before I go, just uh, just wanted a quick word about uh, RetroTube. So if you like this podcast, you'll probably like RetroTube. In fact, I know you will. It's hosted by two former guests, uh, Adam and Heather. Um, Heather memorably turned up on the uh, Phantom Head Shaver episode, which I'm sure many of you remember fondly. And Adam has been um, a regular guest, actually. He's most recently been um, been on GoonPod discussing the bed sitting room. Um, Adam, in some ways, is, is the reason I'm doing this podcast, actually, because he was the person who thought it was a good idea, gave me some tips, uh, suggested the format of the show in the sense of um, not just focusing on doing uh, episodes of the Goon Show only, but broadening the scope. Uh, he also provided the the fantastic uh, uh, Goon Pod artwork and the theme tune, which is superb and uh, for which I am eternally grateful. Uh, so yeah, I owe a lot to Adam and to Heather. And yeah, I think you'll love RetroTube. Here's a bit more about it. Hello, this is a broadcast signal intrusion from RetroTube Archive Television Podcast. Every week on RetroTube, two best friends take it in turns to introduce each other to their favourite TV shows from the 60s, 70s and 80s. I inflict onto Heather all the weird, low-budget, hauntological shows held together with sellotape and stored in an empty cupboard in the back of your most fevered nightmares. And also Doctor Who. And I make Adam watch the glossy, colourful spy shows with a budget of two separate feature films and starring impossibly glamorous trendsetters in sparkly catsuits and the finest Savile Row slacks and blazers, and also Thunderbirds. So far we've covered Man From U.N.C.L.E., The Adventure Game, The Persuaders, Blake 7, Battle of the Planets, Mission Impossible, Grange Hill, The Monkeys, Magical Mystery Tour, The Prisoner, Prisoner, Children of the Stones and ooh, all sorts! If that sounds like it'd be right up your proverbial televisual strasser, why not look up RetroTube on your favourite podcast provider? As with all the best things in life, we are best enjoyed with a good brew and a biscuit. Adam, would you like to have the last word? <laughs> Hopefully people will know what that means. <laughs> so, I will be back next week with an episode about The Last Goon Show of All. Uh, it is the 50th anniversary of the recording of that momentous show. Uh, so it is a uh, very special episode indeed. So look out for that one. Until then, take care of yourselves. See you soon. Bye. <laughs>